0: Luke chapter 9, we begin with verse 18. This is the word of God, let us hear it. And it came to pass as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Who say the people that I am? They answering said, John the Baptist. But some say, Elias. And others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words Of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. I might pause here long enough to point out that it is the feeling of a good number of commentators that this prophecy, if you will, of seeing the kingdom of God is exactly what takes place in the verses that follow now in the Mount of Transfiguration. Continuing in verse 28, And it came to pass about in eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass as they departed from him Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud, and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 36, and we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. In verses 30 and 31, from this portion we've just read, we read these words, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. In our last study, we considered that Elijah, even though we have pretty much covered the narrative in the Old Testament uh, pertaining to his life and his ministry. It is worth noting that his name occurs no less than 30 times in the New Testament. Christ spoke of John the Baptist coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. And we spent some time last week considering what that means and considering that this is a power that every child of God can have and should seek. So there was a spiritual sense, you could say, in which Elijah returned to the scene of time in the person of John the Baptist. In the passage we've just read, however, as well as in Matthew 17 and in Mark 9, we have the account of an actual and literal appearance of Elijah. You could call this, I suppose, Elijah's final appearance, or perhaps more appropriately, Elijah's final appearance in glory. We certainly see him here in a way that we didn't see him in the historical narrative of 1 and 2 Kings, in the historical narrative, you may recall how Elijah was recognized when Ahaziah's messengers described him as an hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. That's in Second Kings chapter 1. You may recall that's when Elijah intercepted the prophets that were on their way to inquire of Beelzebub. And Elijah turned them back and Ahaziah, Ahab's son, wanted to know, who was it that turned you back? And when they described his physical appearance that way, a hairy man girt with a girdle of leather, uh, Ahaziah recognized at once, oh yes, that was Elijah. I don't believe that's how Peter and James and John saw him, however, in the passage we've just read. Notice again the words of verse 30 and 31. And behold, there talked with him, that is Christ, two men, which were Moses and Elias. And let me remind you that Elias there is simply another translation uh, for Elijah. No doubt about who's in view here. Okay, there talked with him, two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. They appeared with Christ in glory, which leads me to think they must have borne something of a close resemblance to Christ. Christ's appearance is described for us, So we read in verse 29, And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was as white as the light. Matthew tells us part of that in his account, okay? And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. Mark tells us, in his account, in Mark chapter 9 and verse 3. And I know I've remarked on this in the past, but it does seem as if the authors of the Gospels are struggling for words to try to describe the brightness and the splendor and the glory with which Christ did shine in the Mount of Transfiguration. I'm thinking then that when we read of Moses and Elijah appearing in glory with him that the same could be said of their appearances as well. And indeed, the word glory in verse 30 carries the literal idea of splendor or brightness. And so we find Moses and Elijah in glory, brightness, splendor, appearing there with Christ. Now there is something somewhat mysterious about the accounts in the Gospels of Moses and Elijah appearing with Christ. How is it, do you suppose, that Peter and John and James even recognized Moses and Elijah? How would Peter have known That this is who they were. Even if they had seen pictures depicting Moses and Elijah, those pictures would have been very crude reproductions at best. We don't know, and we're not told how they recognized Moses and Elijah, but we can say for sure that they did recognize them. Luke and Matthew and Mark are all in agreement on that score. All three of the synoptic gospels stated very plainly that Moses and Elijah appeared with Christ. And Peter's unwise suggestion in verse 33 about building tabernacles for the three of them makes it very apparent that he recognized these two glorious characters as Moses and Elijah. So we read in that verse, And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. So here, then, we discover what we might call this last and final appearance of Elijah, In glory. I know I said last week that I'm somewhat surprised that Arthur Pink didn't carry his study of Elijah into the New Testament. On the other hand, perhaps I shouldn't be surprised because in these passages that give us the account of Christ being transfigured in the Mount, one thing becomes very clear in all three accounts and that is that Christ rightfully carries the preeminence in these accounts of the transfiguration. The focus is on Christ, not primarily on Moses or Elijah, but on Jesus Christ. So keeping that in mind, that it is Christ that has the preeminence, I think we can nevertheless raise a valid question that I'll endeavor to answer this morning, which goes like this. What does Elijah teach us then in his last and glorious appearance? Are there lessons that we can draw from Elijah or from Moses for that matter? What does Elijah teach us in his last and glorious appearance. And there are some very simple lessons that I want to draw your attention to. Uh, nothing deeply profound. Well, actually, they are profound, but, uh, but very simple as well. Consider with me, first of all, that Elijah teaches us that to know Christ is eternal life. To know Christ is eternal life. When we read that Moses and Elijah talked with Jesus, verse 30, the implication is that they were familiar with Jesus. You don't get the inclination, the impression at all, that these are first-time introductions, so to speak, between Moses and Elijah with Christ. Jesus knows them, and they know him. And I know I'm only saying the obvious when I make such a comment, and yet the fact that they are familiar with Jesus indicates that Jesus was the one that they fellowshiped with even in those Old Testament narratives that speak of them. We've noted throughout our studies of Elijah that every step he took was a step that was directed by the word of the Lord. We're introduced to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. And almost immediately, in verse 2 of that chapter, following his announcement to Ahab that there would be no rain, we read in verse 2, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan, and it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. A few verses later in that same chapter, we have the account of the brook Cherith drying up. And so we read in verse 8, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Next comes chapter 18 in verse 1. We read, and it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Then there came the contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, the contest during which Elijah called on fire from heaven. In verse 36 of chapter 18, we read in connection with the calling down of that fire Elijah's prayer. Listen to how he prayed. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant. And that I have done all these things at thy word. And so we see that repeated pattern, and I know I pointed that out uh, many times over the course of our studies in those chapters how Elijah was governed by the word of the Lord. There was only one instance in that historical narrative where Elijah acted by impulse rather than by the word of the Lord, and that is when he fled from the wicked queen Jezebel, following her threat to take his life. We have no statement in that instance that the word of the Lord directed him to flee. Aside from that instance, we find Elijah everywhere being directed by the word of the Lord. And even in the instance of his fleeing, we find the angel of the Lord ministering to him, encouraging him by strengthening him for the 40-day journey that awaited him and took him to Mount Horeb. Now, I review these instances that we've covered in our studies to make the point that when we read of the word of the Lord coming to Elijah, we should bear in mind what John tells us in the opening verses of his gospel, which is that Christ is the word. John 1, 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Elijah, simply put, fellowshiped with Christ. He was no stranger to him. Elijah knew Christ. So when we find Elijah with Moses talking to Christ, we have to conclude that he's not talking to a stranger now. He's talking to the very person that directed his steps throughout the narrative of First and Second Kings. And would you note in the light of this that Elijah and Moses are both alive. The time span between Elijah in 1 Kings and Elijah in Luke chapter 9 you could say covers some six centuries. More than that, between Moses in Deuteronomy and Moses in Luke 9? And where do you suppose Moses and Elijah were throughout those many hundreds of years? I think we'd have to say the same thing would apply to them. That would apply to the Apostle Paul, who would write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 5, Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. They were in the Lord's presence, Moses and Elijah. Now, it raises an interesting question. I'm sure we had the account, didn't we, of Elijah ascending into heaven by a fiery chariot, body and soul. Was his body and soul alive in heaven uh, throughout those many years? Um, I don't know. Maybe so, maybe not. But whether or not they were, uh, we know for sure that Moses and Elijah were both with Christ. Moses, of course, we know died It specifically says at the end of Deuteronomy that he died and it was the Lord himself that buried him in a place that was remote, in a place that never has been discovered. But here they both are in the presence of the Lord. What Elijah proves to us therefore is that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. To know Christ To believe in Christ is eternal life. As Christ himself said in his high priestly prayer in John 17 and verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Oh, what an important lesson that Elijah teaches us in this transfiguration account of Christ the most important matter you will ever face pertains to whether or not you believe in Christ and know Christ indeed i'd go so far as to say that the eternal destiny of your soul hinges on that very thing do you know Christ do you believe in Christ do you commune with him regularly through his word and through prayer? If you don't know him or believe in him, I hope you will. Indeed, I hope you'll call on him right now, even where you sit. You don't have to wait for the end of the sermon. Call on him now. Call on him from your heart, where you sit, because to know him To believe in him is to have everlasting life. So that's the first lesson, and it's an obvious lesson that Elijah teaches us in his final and glorious appearance to know Christ is everlasting life. In close connection with this lesson, there is another one that Elijah teaches us. So consider with me next that Elijah teaches us that Christ's death is essential. Christ's death is essential. Now, Matthew and Mark and Luke all call our attention to the transfiguration of Christ, and all three gospel writers call our attention to the fact that Moses and Elijah appeared with Christ in the Mount of Transfiguration, Only Luke, however, clues us in on what was being discussed between Christ with Moses and Elijah. We focused on this discussion a number of years ago around the Lord's table when I preached a communion message entitled Discussions in Glory. And I focused that whole message on this uh, phenomenon. Moses and Elijah talking with Christ what did they talk about we are able in a sense to eavesdrop on that discussion a little bit we don't know a lot of the details okay in that study I raised that question about what will be discussed in heaven And when we look at passages such as the one we're looking at today in Luke 9, and when we compare it with other passages, say like what we find in Revelation 5, we're able to conclude that it is the atoning death of Christ that will be something that occupies our minds and our worship throughout the ages. Notice again what it says. Uh, in verse 30 and 31, Behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he, sh- he should accomplish at Jerusalem. They spoke of his decease. We compare that to, say, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, and we're taken up into a heavenly scene Now, And it says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And a couple verses later, in verse 12, we have the expression of 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Do you see how they are taken up with the Lamb that was slain? And how in the Mount of Transfiguration, the topic of discussion was Christ's decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. It would seem then, wouldn't it, that we never will get over the death of Christ. Indeed, we never want to get over the death of Christ. We never should get over the death of Christ. The truth of Christ's death will be celebrated in heaven, and we know from the ordination of the Lord's table that Christ's death is something to be remembered throughout the course of church history. Given the topic of discussion between Christ with Moses and Elijah and the worship of the multitudes in heaven, I think you could argue that there's a sense in which our worship here on earth provides us with a foretaste of heaven. Provided, of course, that our focus is right. And would you note the words of our text that Christ's decease and that's an interesting word, that word decease. That means literally in the Greek, his exodus, his departure from this world. The thing that I find really amazing here is that it is spoken of as an accomplishment. Note again from verse 31. Moses and Elijah spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. We don't usually think of death as an accomplishment, do we? We view death as a tragedy, and we view it as something that is inevitable uh, for us all, for every mortal. Try as we may, we can only avoid it for so long We may delay it by taking good care of ourselves. We may dodge it a time or two by applying to our bodies the advances we gain in the fields of science and medicine, but eventually we all succumb to it, and when that happens, the things that will be remembered as accomplishments will be the things we manage to do during our lifetimes. Your death and my death really won't be seen as an accomplishment unless by chance you perform some heroic deed that perhaps saves the lives of others by your death well keeping this general concept of death in mind then i think you would agree that we find the words of our text to be quite remarkable when we read that Moses and Elijah spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. And we certainly are able to magnify Christ's death in our hearts and in our minds when we contemplate all that was accomplished by it. We know that the purging of our sins was accomplished by Christ's death, so we read in Hebrews 1 and verse 3, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. What a tremendous verse of assurance. How do you know your sins are purged? How do you know your sins are cleansed? Well, I know it this way. My Savior is seated at the right hand of God, a place that he Did not take and would not take until he had accomplished the purging of my sins. And what an accomplishment it was. Our sins purged. The word purge means cleansed. And so successful was this accomplishment by Christ that it can be said in Isaiah 44, in verse 22, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. And a chapter earlier in Isaiah, we read in chapter 43 and verse 25, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Oh, what a clear prophetic statement pertaining to Christ. And doesn't such a statement show us what an accomplishment, what a spectacular accomplishment the death of Christ truly was. He's purged our sins from the remembrance of God. They've been removed from us, according to the psalmist, as far as the east is from the west. We also know that Christ accomplished redemption by his atoning death. So we read in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12 neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Having obtained it, he accomplished it. From the point of Christ's atoning death on Calvary's cross, you could argue we became his purchased possession. He would not lose us, because he paid too high a price for us. What an essential lesson we're taught, therefore, from this heavenly discussion between Christ with Moses and Elijah. And I should add, before I conclude this point, that Moses and Elijah demonstrate for us the essential need we all have for Christ's atoning death. Oh, Moses and Elijah are very eminent characters in Old Testament scriptures. They both did outstanding feats. They both performed spectacular miracles. And yet for all their exploits, they still needed Christ's atoning death to be accomplished for them. You can almost picture them. We're not given any details in this discussion But we know that in order for Moses and Elijah to maintain their status of being in glory, Christ must go through with his atoning death. Like every child of Adam, Moses and Elijah were sinners, you see. And sinners... No matter what kind of exploits they've done, no matter uh, how eminent they are as leaders, prominent figures in the Bible, sinners need the salvation that Christ's atoning death provides. You can see, can't you, that Moses and Elijah would have had a vital interest in what Christ was about to do at Jerusalem So Elijah teaches us some very important lessons in his final and glorious appearance. He teaches us that knowing Christ is eternal life, and he teaches us that Christ's atoning death is essential for salvation. I scarcely can think of a more important subject to be discussed in the Mount of Transfiguration than Christ's atoning death. Especially since that atoning death would soon be upon the Lord Jesus. One more lesson that I want to highlight for you that is taught to us by Elijah in his final appearance. And would you note that Elijah teaches us the harmony between the Old and New Testaments. Elijah teaches us the harmony between the Old and New Testaments. Makes for an interesting question to ponder. Why Moses? Maybe even more so, why Elijah? I mean, Moses, okay, he wrote the books of the Pentateuch. He was a leader in his time. He was the one that was most revered by the Jews in Christ's time. Maybe we can understand uh, the choice of Moses. Why Elijah, though? Why were these two Old Testament characters chosen to appear with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration? And just about every commentary that I consulted put forth the view that Moses and Elijah appear with Christ, arguably in a representative way. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And the thing you must ever keep in mind when you read your Bible is that the law and the prophets all point us to Jesus Christ. One of my favorite passages in the Gospels is found in Luke chapter 24 where you have the account of Christ drawing near to those two disciples on the Emmaus road. Oh my, they were downcast and discouraged. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. We find them saying in verse 21, to Christ whom they didn't recognize. Never had hopes been built up so high only to be pushed over a cliff as it were. And that was their condition at that time. And then Jesus does an amazing thing. He conducts a Bible study that I suppose every preacher and every theologian and indeed every Christian could wish that he could have been present to hear. So we read (coughs) in Luke 24, beginning in verse 25, Then he, Christ, said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then further down in that same chapter, Luke 24, verse 44, For you have Christ among all his disciples now. We read his words. These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. I suppose had Christ seen fit, he could have uh, included David in that transfiguration account. But... Moses and Elijah. And if ever there was a passage in Scripture to provide a guide as to how we're to read and understand our Bibles, it would be that passage in Luke 24 where Christ has given you the key to the whole thing. It all points to Him. Add to this passage the statement that Christ makes in John chapter 5 and verse 29, where he says to the Pharisees with whom he's debating, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. It seems appropriate then, doesn't it, that Moses and Elijah appear with Christ in the Mount of Transfiguration, in a kind of representative capacity to demonstrate to us the unity of the Old and New Testaments. I'll add one more passage to drive the point home. This one found in Romans. You could find it, you find it in Romans 1, and you find it again in Romans 3. I'll restrict myself here to the passage in Romans 3, after laboring for two and a half chapters to establish the guilt of the entire human race, Paul then begins his positive exposition of the gospel in chapter 3 and verse 21 to expound the glorious doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Some of his adversaries would accuse him of being innovative and inventing new doctrine but Paul makes it very plain in chapter 3 and verse 21 in Romans that he was not introducing something new. Listen to what he writes. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. That is gospel righteousness now that Paul is speaking about. The righteousness of God without or outside of the law is manifested. And then listen to what he goes on to say being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul is building his case for the gospel on the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the gospel. Don't ever forget that. You want to read your Bible rightly. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, Unto all and upon all them that believe. Do you see how this gospel righteousness, this free gift of righteousness, is witnessed to by the law and by the prophets? Oh, dear believer in Christ and students of God's word, don't ever lose sight of the fact that the Bible is one book. I get disturbed greatly when I'm in a discussion or a debate with um, some other believer and I'm making a case in point and I'm drawing from the Old Testament uh, to make that case uh, only to be rebuffed by the remark, oh, but that's the Old Testament. As if to say, therefore, it doesn't count. Uh, that's a whole separate entity. That's a whole different story. Uh, no, it's not, folks. And don't ever buy into the notion that it is. Uh, I, I get so flustered with that that usually my thinking goes, I'm not going to waste my time. <laughs> if, if you can't see that, if you've never seen the Bible as a unified whole with a singular theme, uh, I doubt that anything I can tell you now is going to be uh, of any real impact on you. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation tells a single story, and it's a wonderful and glorious story. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of how that redemption was designed by God, accomplished by Christ, and applied by the Holy Spirit. Oh, I'm looking forward to meeting Moses and Elijah in glory. I don't know how, but our text makes it pretty clear that we will recognize others in glory. But beyond meeting Moses and Elijah, I'm looking forward especially to joining them and the myriads of others around the Lord's throne that will sing with all their hearts Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. What I'm wondering this morning as we bring this service to a close is will you be in that number? You can be. All you need to do is heed the exhortation of Paul in Acts 16 and verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Oh, may the Lord stamp these lessons from this final and glorious appearance of Elijah deeply on our hearts this day in a way that will be deep and abiding for his name's sake. Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence and bring this time to a close, we thank thee for the glimpse of glory we receive in these portions of thy word, Christ transfigured in the mount, Moses and Elijah talking with him about what he would accomplish by his death. We thank thee, Lord, that you followed through, And that having loved your own which are in this world, you loved them all the way to the end, all the way to Calvary's cross. O Lord, I pray that thou wilt help us to read our Bibles aright, help us to recognize the divine intention behind this glorious book, which is to point us to Christ, by whose death we are saved. So, Lord, hear our prayers and take our thanks now. In Jesus' name, amen.